tonight, I'd like to speak a little bit about some of the obstacles that we face on our, on our hero's journey. And I wanted to start this talk since uh, Molly has been, uh, my daughter Molly has been made known to this retreat. I thought that I would begin with a, a poem that I um, read to her and found in a book by Shel Silverstein that reminds me of the way you all look tonight. It's called Me Stew. I have nothing to put in my stew, you see, not a bone or a bean or a black-eyed pea. So I'll just climb in the pot to see if I can make some stew out of me. I'll put in some pepper and salt, and I'll sit in the bubbling water. I won't scream a bit. I'll sing while I simmer. I'll smile, smile while I'm stewing. I'll taste myself often to see how I'm doing. <laughs> I'll stir me around with this big wooden spoon and serve myself up at a quarter to noon. So bring out your stew bowls, you gobblers and snackers. Farewell. I hope you enjoy me with crackers. <laughs> The title of this evening's talk is The, uh, the Obstacles um, Are Our Path. I thought it today a little bit about, uh, and I guess I would face a mild sort of obstacle, thinking about giving a, what we call a hindrance talk to a month-long retreat. Many of you who've heard hundreds, maybe, hindrance of talks. And when I thought of you all glazing over at the first mention, it didn't exactly produce a very pleasant feeling. <laughs> so nevertheless, I had, to, I had to work with my own mind and my own uh, anticipatory concern. It was quite mild, actually, and, but uh, noticeable nevertheless. And yet, the, as with everything, once it meets the light of awareness, once that whatever that uh, reverberation of whatever formation that has come into our mind, whatever reaction we may be having, once it meets that light of attention, there's some kind of magic, there's some kind of tenderizing effect, some loosening, some sense of, at least for a moment, some greater sense of ease. I, tonight, I, um, I, the other thing I thought about beginning with was, or as a kind of prologue, was that the, uh, a poem by Hafiz where he really talks about the, this magical power of the, the light of attention. He says in his poem called It Felt Love, how did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. So in some ways, this talk will be, as all our talks will be, they will be, uh, they will be part one, part two, part three of the, the liberating, healing power of our own uh, mindful attention, our own nature, and that you, we have really everything we need to, uh, to make this hero's journey. And it's amazing how much happens. I know that all of you have been through a lot in these three, three days of practice. 
And yet, in some ways, nothing's happened. It's just moments, <laughs> unfolding moments. But it, it's remarkable how it can be so dramatic, yet it's just these simple moments. And it's so interesting how our mind frames it when really all, the, all that's happening is we're sitting together right now. I actually like to talk about the difficulties of practice because for me, it, is, it has been the difficulties. And I think for the Buddha, it was the difficulties that were really part and parcel of his illumination. And for me, it, it's the difficulties that I've worked with in my own practice that have really given me much more confidence in, and faith in, in awareness. I know Sally last night mentioned the, a little bit of the story of the Buddha. And one of the ways I thought that I would enter into this world of the obstacles was just to revisit a little portion of that story. The portion of the story after he took some food and he discovered in his mind through, that, through his uh, satipanya, his, his, his mindful wisdom, that the the path of extremes was not uh, was not really it was workable, and that he found that middle way between uh, suppression or self mortification and indulgence, and he took food and he sat down under the bodhi tree. And when she was, I was listening to her talk this afternoon, and it was funny because I immediately when she started talking about the Buddha under the bodhi tree, I remembered the strangest experience happened to me sitting under the Bodhi tree. I had had the good fortune of being able to go and uh, help lead a retreat in Bodh Gaya with Christopher Titmus back in the 80s. And I had been to Bodh Gaya, but I didn't really know anything about uh, Buddha Dharma the previous time I'd gone. So this time I was f- filled with high hopes and, and idealization of this being under the Bodhi tree and everything that it meant. And from the moment I sat down, this is what it, it kind of raises those same kinds of questions that Carol raised in her talk about what those lights were. But the moment I sat down, I was assaulted by every possible discomfort. My mind was agitated. I could not find a comfortable position. Everything ached. Every, there was all kinds of doubt. I started to feel, why do I, you know, I, who do I think I am to be able to even be sitting here? And one thing led to another, and the whole evening, and I sat there a long time because in those days, if I remember correctly, Christopher used to do a, a midnight talk. And <laughs> one, it was late and I was tired, but, but beside, all, those, all these things came into my mind, these obstacles. And to me, the Bodhi tree is inseparable from having dealt with all those obstacles for me, and, I, and I'm sure for the Buddha as well. But when he sat under that Bodhi tree, he did precisely what we are all doing. He used the, the natural capacity of his own mind, this capacity to gather our attention, the quality, sometimes called, you've probably heard the word vitaka, this quality of gathering, used the quality of sustaining, of really staying with what was there, using his mind, using his body, he 
through that process of connecting and sustaining, he found a sense of calm and sense of presence, sense of receptivity, finding that balance of attention, that balance of energy and effort. And as he sat there, as we all sit here, he was then faced with and described the forces in his mind, he described as, uh, as the forces of, or the voices of Mara. Mara, who most of you know, being mostly veterans, Mara was the personification of all those hindrances that, uh, that tend to cloud our perception, convince us that this moment is not a moment that it is possible to find relief in, and that I have to go somewhere, do something, have something, get rid of something, become someone, I have to relinquish whatever it is that the mind will trick us into endlessly waiting, endlessly postponing, endlessly looking out of ourselves in search for relief. And this is the function of the hindrances. So Mara came to visit the Buddha just the way Mara comes to visit us. We know Mara as, and you're free to use the the sense, oh, Mara's like this, or here's Mara right now. Many people do that in their practice, but we know Mara as these five common energies that float through our minds. The energies of the desire for some kind of pleasure, that, that tendency to go out in search of something more pleasurable than what's occurring, assuming that that is the source of relief. The aversive mind that says says something, some other time when I can uh, get rid of, uh, get that person to stop doing what they're doing, get out of that relationship, whatever it might be, uh, that kind of trance that says, I, I can't be happy now. Rest, the restless mind that's, that's a little bit entranced by, uh, by what's next. Like I, I, I was a little bit entranced with restlessness today by when I had that thought about giving a hindrance talk to, to this retreat. I began to feel a sense of uh, tremoring, a little worry. And this is really just restlessness and worry. And sometimes it's spoken about in the form of remorse or uh, agitation. Then sloth and torpor, which was mentioned by several people. And last but not least, the force of doubt. Anyone have any doubt today? <laughs> so th- these are our practice. One of my teachers said once, uh, the, the, the hindrances are the practice. Another, another one said, the practice is easy. It's just the hindrances that are difficult. But these, this is really what we, what we work with. So the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree, as you are. And he sat not only with, these, with the qualities of mind, of presence that we're all cultivating, the steadiness of mind, letting that that mirror-like quality of awareness shine on on experience, letting everything be reflected in our mind without really trying to interfere with it in any way. And an interesting thing happened to the Buddha when he sat under the Bodhi tree. As he paid attention to the voices of Mara, as well as paying attention to everything else that presented itself in his mind, each thing he paid attention to rather when, it was, when he met it with, with mindful attention, rather than it be 
a source of, of suffering, a source of misery, a source of confusion, of, of entrancement. It became, the, it became his path. It became actually the cause, one way of talking about it, the cause for his attention to even brighten more and more. It's as though everything he paid attention to had the effect of increasing the sense of, of being just here, just now. And the brighter his, you could say, this is all metaphor, but the brighter his mind became, he began to have the sense that it was just shining in its clarity. You've all heard the phrase that's been spoken so many times in the teachings, luminous is the mind, brightly shining. And it is colored by the defilements or these hindrances that visit it. Thus, the unlearned yogi doesn't understand this, and so there's no cultivation of the mind. But it goes on to say, luminous is the mind, brightly shining, but it is untouched by these defilements that visit it. Thus, the, the yogi understands, therefore, there's cultivation of the mind. There are many different translations of this. But the more he worked with these forces in his mind, seeing Mara, of course, the stories go that each time he saw one of these forces in his mind, he says, Mara, I see you. And Mara, feeling shamed or uh, ch chastened, would just kind of scurry away or disappear. They don't often do that so much, uh, at least that I've noticed. <laughs> but what I have noticed is that when there is that willingness to simply open to that quality that may be in my mind. I, was, I spoke a little bit about this on the last retreat uh, because someone had gotten into, into this intense, aversive uh, reaction to someone who was sitting next to them who was breathing quite uh, loudly. Any of you had that experience before? Well, this person, it, it wasn't just hearing. It was hearing, and then because that particular sound gave rise to the, it had a, an unpleasant association. You know, we work with those feelings of pleasant and unpleasant and, and neutral. And so I, I like to think of this as ground zero and whether we become uh, mentally ill from one moment to the next. But this... <laughs> And when I say men, I do it in, I say it in a lighthearted kind of way. But that moment, that feeling tone of unpleasant was instantly followed by this very strong aversive reaction. And, and that aversive reaction wasn't so easily noticed and it easily spawned the, the whole internal drama that each one of these uh, voices of Mara has a very convincing story. How dare they interfere with my practice? Don't they have any sensitivity? You know, they're just, you know, they, I, I would never do anything like that. And I, I, should I talk to them? Should I leave a note? Should I tell the teacher? Should, should I, uh, what should I do? And, and it goes on and on and on. So the person is in this intense drama. And you may have had some version of an aversive drama. A lot of people felt a little irritated today. Uh, and this is very common for the first days of a retreat. But all of that experience was, was a torment to this person's mind. 
But interestingly enough, when they were able to open to that experience, be able to shine that light of attention on that feeling of aversion and ill will, respectfully, graciously putting aside the story of it for a moment and really allowing to register the impact of that ill will in the body, the effect of that anger. Not only did that feeling reveal itself as a, as a, a weather front, as a changing condition, it st- started to lose some of its solidity, but it began to cause that process where I know when I start to feel some very difficult experience, a difficult mental state, when I really stop and let myself feel it, often my eye will produce my eyes will produce a tear and I'll I'll start to feel the potential of some kind of sympathy toward myself. While I was caught up in the narrative in my mind, caught up in trying to escape that or react to that feeling, and compounding the feeling, I'm I'm getting tighter and tighter and tighter. So this was a um, it was an example of working with the hindrances, being able to stop and notice, ah, this is ill will, whatever flavor of it is. Feel it. How does it feel in the body? I expected, uh, as Sally mentioned this morning, I expected today to to start to rain a little bit, and I was planning to uh, ceremoniously offer the beautiful teaching from uh, Michelle McDonald, that many of you have also uh, received before, of her recommendation about how to actually meet these, these mental states that, when unnoticed, torment us so much and lead us into this view that, uh, that we can't be happy now. But how, when we use this tool that she offers, it allows us to actually turn this, uh, these obstacles into our path, into our... Um, into our practice. And she uses a, a beautiful acronym called RAIN. And RAIN, for those of you who have not heard it, stands for recognize. That's the first step. Register what's going on. The second one, accept or allow. A. The I, investigate. And what we normally do when we think of investigation is we start to reflect and think about why this is happening, what it reminds me of, what it means about me and that other person or, that situ- or this situation. It ends up falling into the how am I doing story. But investigate in the meditative sense is to feel, not just stay with the cognitive with the story, but to actually feel the texture of that state of mind as it's manifesting in our body, feeling it, and then the second part of investigation, at least the way that I like to think of it, is to experience or investigate its behavior. What happens to that feeling when it's noticed? Does it get stronger? Does it stay the same? Does it vanish? Does it alter or change into something else? That process of investigating allows us to begin to see exactly what the Buddha began to see was common to all the experiences that presented 
presented themselves to him as he sat under the Bodhi tree. I go back again to, oh, let me just do the um, N before I go back. So recognize, allow or accept, investigate, and the N is often described as non-identification. But it can also be, I use interchangeably, non-interference, non-clinging, uh, non-evaluating, all the nons, all, which means just get out of the way, let it happen. But non-identification points to the recognition when we see the arising and movement of a particular kind of state of mind or state of being, we recognize that it is happening all by itself. It is changing. It cannot be, it cannot define us because it's a changing condition. And in that way of it arising and passing, it cannot said to be, it cannot be said to be me or mine. We start to recognize its impersonality, its selfless quality, its non-self quality. So as the Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, arousing his mindfulness, his concentration, creating the conditions to be able to be curiously uh, interested in what was presenting itself, he paid attention to the voices of Mara. Each voice, each sensation, each experience that occurred, brightening, brightening his awareness till it was so reflective that, that everything that was very clear. And it became crystal clear that everything that presented itself was arising, changing, passing away. You hear this over and over. The behavior of that experience arising and passing. He saw that, was a, that what was arising and passing, which was everything in mind and body, could not be said to be a reliable refuge or a place to, to use Carol's word, to place one's confidence and faith. And that it was precisely our misplaced faith in things that are changing that keeps us in a state of, of tension and, uh, and confusion. And it became so clear that, this, that nothing that was arising and passing and unreliable could be um, said to be me and mine. It was just a happening. Things were, thoughts were emerging, these states of mind like weather fronts, arising and passing, like clouds through an empty sky. Sensations appearing and disappearing like stars in an empty sky, flickering, everything flickering on and off, all by itself. And even the knowing of this arising and passing of itself with each experience. But with this sense of, of brightness and clarity, his mind naturally, as yours may have today in, in little glimpses when you were just sitting with something, noticing its behavior, because a lot of you have worked with this acronym before, worked with mindful attention, worked with investigating the behavior of what's happening. The more it was clear that everything was coming and going, the less his mind was inclined toward trying to hold on to anything, toward pushing anything away, or 
toward any confusion or misidentification, taking it to be me and mine. And the less he grasped, the less he pushed away, the more he began to discover a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was happening in his mind. Some teachers have described this as the first taste of what he called uh, lokutra sukha, a sense of well-being, unstuck from being so dependent on how things are, giving so much meaning and significance, so much, so much importance to, um, to what's there and somehow ascribing a certain kind of permanence to what's there and then building a monument to it. He saw it. none of it could be clung to. So his mind relaxed. And as he relaxed, he fell into this sense of this, um, the, the joy of, of equanimity, the joy of being not so reactive. And there are many ways that this portion of the story is described, but it's said that it, at a certain point, as he relaxed into this, this natural equanimity, in a flash of insight, his mind just opened, and he realized that what he'd been searching for was none other than the, the very nature of his own mind. Meanwhile, he had already developed the confidence in this, uh, in this attention and awareness, the confidence in it to be and to sit right where he was, the confidence that he was, that you are what, uh, to use a kind of Hindu metaphor that you are what you're looking for. And at first, as you all know, the, he didn't think anybody would get it. He thought that, uh, that beings are so confused, so caught up, in these hindrances, so much spinning in samsara, in this endless loop of looking for love in all the wrong places, looking for a sense of well-being somewhere down the road, not realizing that it's a split second, a half breath away. But then he was, through his eye of wisdom, his one of the so-called powers that came to him with his, the power is of his realization, he saw that there were those with just a little bit of dust on their eyes. And whenever I mention this part, I, I really feel as though uh, everyone who's sitting here, it's so obvious that, you, that we are included in those with just a little dust. And really the rare few who, who not only have a little dust, but are interested enough to, uh, to hear what's, what's been offered, to put it to practice, and then to, to come on a retreat for a month or two months it's very rare in this world, but you are very much included in those um, who, out of compassion, the Buddha wanted to um, to share what he learned. Initially, he didn't he didn't really want to, didn't think anybody would get it. But he th- began to see that those who were pointed toward the capacity within our own hearts and minds, uh, who actually used it and cultivated it could realize the same sense of well-being. He was so, so human, as Sally was saying, just to be able to walk in the areas of, 
in the same place that he walked or the, teach in the same places that he, that he um, sat, uh, you realize that he was just like us, right? not some kind of figment, not some kind of celestial being, just a human being who had the same holy longing that each of us have for something more reliable. So the first people he went to, as the story goes, were his, uh, his old ascetic friends who had the same kind of sincerity but a lot of confusion about, uh, about what actually brings relief. And he went to that deer park in Sarnath and he shared his, uh, that, that first sutra that Sally mentioned last night, the, the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, the turning of the wheel of the Dharma, where he said that there is um, that in this world, there is in this world that which is really hard to bear, and nobody's immune to it. We are, there is the suffering of birth, there's the suffering of sickness, of old age, of death, of not getting what you want, frustrated desire, wounded pride, the suffering of loss, uh, suffering of change, things being ungraspable, and the suffering of just having to deal with it all every day. The, I like to think of it as the, uh, the Groundhog Day feeling of life uh, that sometimes seems very poignant and immediate. But he didn't just stop with, with describing or, pers- or, um, or diagnosing. He said that the prescription for dealing with this is to open to it, to welcome, to bring rain to it, to recognize it as it is, not to, not to run from it, to see this is how it is. Our capacity to believe that this is not the case is, uh, is legendary. Jack Cornfield shared a story with me that uh, I'll share with you that really speaks to our tendency not to really want to welcome this, this fact. It's called the 84th problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, There were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked the Buddha how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, my teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that, asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. (laughs) <laughs> well, this kind of leads into the second 
message that the Buddha had, that what keeps our, especially our mental distress going, the wheel of suffering, the wheel of samsara rolling along, is the, in some ways in a little more intimate sense, just the constant liking and disliking of our experience. But more and more elaborately, the chronic tendency of our mind to want things to be different than the way they are. Any of you notice this today in your practice? How many of you said this is wanting things to be different than the way they are? Actually felt that sense of wanting, felt the sense of the mind that's leaning, that's that's hostage to how things turn out. What happened when you felt that, wanting things to be different? As Carol was saying the other night, we expect in some way to, maybe I I, I can't really, maybe she didn't mean this, but this is one of the ways that I think about it. We expect somehow these things to, to, um, these forces in our mind to somehow go away, to be eradicated. And the fact that we even have that sense of dissatisfaction, it gets compounded by the sense that there's something wrong with me. When right in the midst of our internal drama, there is this this very state of mind can in a moment be used as the cause of awakening, as our path. And it's the difference between being caught in that state of mind and knowing it. It's literally the difference between bondage and freedom. So this chronic tendency to want things to be different than the way they are that expresses itself as the, as the craving for um, for pleasure, the craving for to get somewhere, to become someone, the craving for non-becoming that expresses itself as that desire to make things stop, which is really understandable when things are really difficult to bear. But this habit of being in a state of wanting things to be different than they are, a state that when it goes unnoticed, it leads us to this endless cycle, this endless cycle of feeling that we can't find any um, relief where we are. And it colors our present experience as something fundamentally not okay. And that translates then to a feeling about ourselves that we're not okay. And it just extends into an elaborate, uh, it can go very far afield, an elaborate uh, self-view, which we'll talk about a lot on the retreat. His prescription for dealing with this habit of mind is to, um, to let it go, to relinquish it, to abandon it, as, as uh, Sally even mentioned last night, to let go. And let go doesn't mean get rid of. Let go means let it be, means let it take its natural course. Don't grab, don't, don't condemn, use the the non-interfering power of wakefulness. It's very, it's a very, um, when it's developed, and you can really trust it, when it's developed, it really works like, te- like Teflon. It really allows the, uh, the coming and go, the self-liberating 
uh, experience of, of the different feelings that come, but to incline toward the letting go rather than continuing to feed that, um, that state of, of, of wanting. If you do apply mindfulness, you can know in real time, not just as a theoretical notion, you can know in real time that there's a cessation of craving. You can know that sense of, of well-being and freedom that comes as you see that something comes and goes, that desire. And sometimes, you know, the, often the example that uh, I stole this from James many, many years ago, I like to make proper attributions, but that, that common uh, demand that we have in our mind at a certain point in the sitting, especially in the early part of retreats, for the bell to ring. That sense that the bell is, is the secret to happiness and, and, <laughs> and without it we'll never be okay. And how the tendency is, is to really literally hold ourselves hostage, be in that kind of state of suspended, suspended well-being. And yet, when, you, when we, uh, if we can graciously take our attention off of the bell and when it's going to ring and feel that state of waiting or wanting, the hindrance of desire, the state of desire. It colors our experiences, though. I can't, there's no way I can have relief until the bell rings. That's the wanting mind. Now, that's such a mild example. I, I, I'm slightly inclined to tell you how far, just to normalize this a little bit, how far we can fly with the wanting mind, how it can easily take off. Some of you, many of you know that uh, that it, the force of desire can be so strong for myself, even in the middle, two months into a three-month retreat, somehow, some, some way, I ended up 40 miles away in a hotel room watching a football game on one three-month <laughs> retreat. Now, that's, that's not an accident. That's, it's, a, it's respecting this, the power of this and the entrancing effect of this wanting mind. Of course, that experience and the, the very uncomfortable embarrassment and shame that I felt when the, when the unsatisfactoriness of it finally dawned on me <laughs> became a real cause of inspiration to, um, to really work with this, this wanting mind. And so with the bell, it's something you can do before you end up at the football game. You can just work with the bell a little bit. Waiting or wanting for the bell to ring. Feel that state of waiting. And you may notice that, that that waiting comes and it goes, the bell hasn't even rung, and you're free. You've experienced in real time a mini version of the cessation of grasping, the cessation of clinging, the cessation of becoming, right in the midst of it all. This isn't just a, a nice philosophical uh, text. It's really a practice manual in real time for these Four Noble Truths. The fourth, as, Ali, as uh, Sally elaborated on last night, the fourth truth that he spoke about, oh, the prescription for the third is to realize it. The fourth is to, um, is to cultivate it, as she described. So I asked uh, at lunch today, I ran into... Jack Cornfield, who was eating with us in the yurt, and I asked him 
what he would say to a group of month-long yogis uh, knowing that he was going to give a, a hindrance talk. He would say, and he said, welcome to a month full of hindrances. <laughs> Starting with the, the more obvious and gross ones, moving gradually to the more subtle. This is inevitable. But this is actually good news, because these really are, our, as Trungpa Rinpoche called them, our manure of Bodhi. They really are the, the fertilizer of our practice. So I just want to say a little bit more about each of them. And as I do, in fact, I'll start a little bit more with desire, because I, I guess I know a little more about that one, because I, I would characterize myself as more of the grasping type of, of the three types, the aversive type, the deluded type. I'm more the grasping type. But with all of these, though, we come to them quite honestly. We, uh, we are so acculturated to the, uh, uh, an environment of desire. The basic paradigm is that the more you get, the more experiences you have, the more you can use pleasant experience to soothe yourself, the happier you'll be. And unfortunately, it's not usually um, acknowledged that it hasn't really made anyone happy. You know, I think of a classic line from Bo Lozoff where he says that we, um, we're so busy uh, trying to keep up with the Joneses, but it's time that we realize that the Joneses are not happy for one reason or another. But the wanting mind is, is so much part of our, of our uh, internal, uh, our external culture and our internal culture. That desire for things to be different, the desire for pleasure, it is so strong. It, it, and it manifests in daily life in all the ways that you probably already know. Already know. It manifests on retreat as the, as the, uh, the really incessant urge for, for either a pleasant experience or uh, it can manifest as the, the classic uh, Vipassana romance or you know, the whole story of, of how someone's going to be the cause of your great happiness. We'll talk more about that as we go along. But it really is this quality that has on the surface a very pleasant Always, the, the tanha, this word for craving and connected to sense pleasures, it's often associated, you often hear the sense of tanha with delight. Because on the surface, the appearance in our mind is, produces a pleasant feeling. There's, a, there's pleasure in the state of craving, superficially. But when we begin to pay attention to the underlying universe of the wanting mind, that state of mind that we're literally practicing every day if we're feeding it. We're practicing a particular feeling that when I've paid attention to it, it has shown itself as being quite tight and uncomfortable. The underlying universe, the sense of, that sense of, of hanging or waiting or hoping, that sense of being slightly tense in, in weight. And I think that it is that tension that actually drives it and that keeps the, so you get these two cycles going, the pleasant on the surface and the unpleasant, and they keep reinforcing each other. I think that's what got me 40 miles away to a, 
a motel room to watch a football game. It was both the pleasantness, but it was, it was wanting to relieve that unpleasantness. It's so disconnected from, from the sense of being at home, the sense of well-being. But just as another reflection on how we all, come, how we all came to feel this, uh, this very strong habit, I've always found very useful the words of Sogil Rinpoche, where he says, really describing the, the cultural influences, he says, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for, and discourage from people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. Perhaps you'll contemplate that a little bit. (laughs) If we don't, we end up like the character in the cartoon, uh, in the um, advertisement named Spence, who I'm sure many of you have heard about, just uh, a one line about Spence. Spence put a new twist on an old philosophy. To be one with everything, he says, you've got to have one of everything. <laughs> this, is the, this is our cultural habit. And so we feel this when we come on retreat. It's not personal. It's not your fault. It's really just part of our natural conditioning, and it can be the uh, it can be used. Everything can be used, as Carol was saying. Once you uh, have confidence, you put your confidence and trust in awareness. Then it doesn't matter. Everything is workable, and particularly with the hindrances, these difficult states of mind, these blinding states of mind when we don't notice them. When we when we rest in the awareness that knows these they become actually the cause of our, our freedom. Because the, the, the contrast between their blinding quality and what happens when we wake up to them is so, is so dramatic. Don't believe me, though. Just continue to, to see for yourself. I spoke already of, of ill will, anger, aversion. That's the second uh, hindrance and the, uh, the same recommendation to deal with it is to, is to begin to feel it. Of all the different, I'd say, of all the different uh, mental states that, or torments, that like uh, anger being one of them, that is the one that when felt, at least for me, check it out for yourself, 
when felt, has been more the cause of tenderness, more the cause of mercy and compassion than, uh, than any of the other hindrances. It's so, it is so painful to actually uh, taste that. And why it translates into compassion is you realize how painful it is when you feel it, how painful it is for others, and how, how much that is something. I used to get very angry at people who were angry. And slowly, slowly in my life, I'm a little bit, I feel much more empathy now rather than much more, much more the response of the heart of, oh, ouch, you know, that's, and not all the time. I, you know, if, if it's a little close to home, I can still fly off quite easily if somebody gets angry with me. But by and large, it's been the cause of, of, of much more sympathy. And uh, so that's one thing, not to mention that you can begin, anger is one of those states of mind that it gets so bound up with identification, with me and mine. And to feel it, every one of these states reveal themselves as changing conditions. They just, they are not, um, they're not permanent. So they can't define you, they're not you. And then the, th- the next one, sloth and torpor. With anger, of course, sometimes we need antidotes. They're not easy to deal with. With desire, we need antidotes as well. Sometimes some of the traditional antidotes were to, um, to um, think of the rotting corpse or think of the 32 parts of the body, just so because the tendency is to get very attached to our bodies and beautification and pleasure and somehow reflecting on the inevitable demise of the body and just not turning it into a kind of morbid practice, but really just seeing how it is, tends to begin to develop a little dispassion towards some of, some of our um, incessant wanting. As well with desire, uh, often it's very useful to put ourselves in conditions that are not so comfortable, just so that we can find our, know that we can find our composure. And so we're a little less dependent on the, the um, intense comfort that we usually depend on. So with ill will and aversion, we work with it mindfully, but sometimes we need a little extra support. And the loving kindness practice is considered really the a really central antidote for the, um, the feeling of anger. And because anger is often uh, projected on others and attributed, our anger is attributed to what somebody else does, of course it's never about what somebody else does. It is never somebody else's fault. How does that feel when you hear that? Does that seem obvious? It is never someone else's fault that we're angry. Let me see if that's true. <laughs> it's, it's never somebody's fault that we're angry, but it, we are certainly intim- intimately connected with what other people do. But the reactions are myriad. And you could line up 10 people in the same event may produce 10 different reactions. So we have to work with it as though it is our own. And in more cases than not, when we feel ill will, irritation, anger, fear, it's, a lot of it is not so much about what somebody did, but some, mom, some capacity that we have lost to stay really connected and present to be able to deal with the sense of insecurity that we feel, the sense of loss of presence. And so it's a reminder to 
to make sure that we graciously take our attention off of this so-called object of, of anger, the person who's breathing or the person who's walking in the room and, or the person who's walking up the stairs loudly and closing the doors loudly. It, it becomes, you know, that can really turn into a, uh, either a major attack or everything about, about, um, about ourselves. Instead, we take our attention off of that and we we use that feeling to come back to ourselves, to return to a sense of presence. Sometimes it does require that we, we feel it, and sometimes it's too much to bear it first. And sometimes it's helpful actually to find something in our environment that feels a little bit more neutral, that's more easy to bear, and perhaps sometimes go back and forth, go back and forth through our breath, Sometimes we, if, it, if it's really fixated on another person, that we can reflect on that, uh, that that person uh, is, um, is a human being. We sometimes, sometimes imagining that person as a baby, uh, naked, uh, that they want to be happy. Uh, and then also to remember that we may not like the person, that um, we don't have to like the person, but we can, we can uh, still try to to, um, to lessen the sense of ill will that we feel toward them. So sloth and torpor, we've talked a lot about some of the antidotes standing. And, and you'll see in these first days, continue, it can continue for many days. Sally was mentioning this morning. You'll see an ever-changing flow. And this really, I'm including right now some comments on restlessness as well. But you'll see the ebb and flow of both of these, of restlessness and sleepiness. And you can see this in one way as, as a kind of uh, ever-shifting balance. And you'll see that when your energy is high and your uh, sense of tranquility is low, you'll have a lot of restlessness. When your tranquility is high, and it's often the case when it's quiet, where we drop into our bodies, it's very still, it's very sweet. So tranquility arises, but there's not much energy. We tend to sleep. So the various uh, methods that we have for arousing energy, uh, the methods when we have too much energy of calming, of working with the breath, of letting our mind be more spacious, quite useful for the energetic effect of restlessness. But you may also want to know, notice with restlessness that it's often associated with worry. So our mind tends to be in some kind of fixation about, uh, about what's next, some kind of anticipatory experience. So to recognize the, whatever the story that might be occurring, but come into the body, feel that restlessness, uh, meet it with that co- same kind of tension. And I have just a few more minutes, but the last but not least, the one that uh, I think is is perhaps the most undermining, most debilitating, withering of any of the different states of mind when it goes unnoticed. It's just the doubting mind, the mind that says, why am I here? Uh, Why did I come here? The mind that often will then extend to some of the other 
hindrances, and then you start, as many of you probably already have, planning your escape. Any of you? No. This is such a mature crowd. <laughs> but the, the sense that, that someone said this morning very innocently and honestly, there's often a feeling, this is not working. You know, sometimes it can be based on some uh, expectation or ideal that's not necessarily, um, that we just one think don't really necessarily know what should happen and but yet we carry some kind of ideal and when our when our practice doesn't meet that ideal we start to we start to devolve into a, a feeling of i can't get it and then it, we form a sense of identity around it and it builds a it builds a very uncomfortable situation it kind of takes away the energy of practice so instead as with all of these states of mind we try to come out of this story. We recognize it. We see it, but we try to actually feel the sense of anger or the sense of doubt in our body. We feel the, what does doubt feel like? What's it feel like in our mind? How does it feel in our body? We recognize it. We accept that it's there. We can acknowledge that doubt is like this. And we notice what happens to that feeling when it meets that, that light of attention. And to, to, to just briefly to distinguish between the kind of doubt that, that is often spoken about in the, in the Zen tradition, which is the great doubt, that doubt that says, I don't know, that Sally and Carol spoke about, to really keep that sense of I don't know, that great doubt, and to cultivate it. It's a really important, it's the, it's the quality that allows discovery to happen, to that, that adventure to really unfold in the way that it's, it naturally will. But the skeptical doubt, in some ways, which is that contracted doubt, that constricted doubt, really impedes our practice. And so we need to work with it. And sometimes the Dharma talks will help. Sometimes they won't. But it's really good to be grounded in the teachings. And that can sometimes dispel some of our doubt. But the other thing that I mentioned on the first evening, to really utilize the sangha when you're in a state of doubt. Look at the other people practicing. They were huge supports to me. I had many classic experiences of what's sometimes called the rolling up the mat phase, where I wanted to roll up my mat and go home. But I looked around, and I saw people doing it. And it somehow gave me a little bit of, uh, of confidence that to, just to stick with it. So whatever version of doubt, don't hesitate to periodically remember that you're sitting in a sea of practitioners, that this is a long stream of practitioners. As Sally was saying this morning, keep at it. You will develop the, uh, the, this wonderful observing power, this, this, um, this sense of being at home, this capacity to work with these different mental states. As she mentioned this morning, as, and this I'll just say in closing, she mentioned that passage from the Buddha where he said, whatever one frequently thinks about, dwells upon, that will become the inclination of the mind. Clearly, these hindrances are the results of having frequently dwelled upon these forces in our mind. And we did it quite innocently and unknowingly that it would, it would create such disturbance in our hearts. But the good news is that we can work with them. And I, when I was thinking about this afternoon, I was thinking about the, 
a line that's often used from Padmasambhava where he says, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. And if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. And I, I look at the second part of this as, a, as um, to me, it's always been very inspiring because it reminds us that the moments when we are awake, these simple moments, are, are moments of, of possibility. They're moments where we are free to plant the seed that will, the seed of the opposite, perhaps, of, of grasping, the seed of generosity, the seed of kindness, the opposite of aversion, the seed of calm, to turn toward contentment. We can only do that in these moments where we're awake and mindful, incline our mind toward that. And the reminder in the midst of this is that, of this passage, is that we are, as the uh, one way of saying it, we are trainable. We can, our minds can be, be transformed. Uh, th- that line from the Buddha where he said, if this was not possible to do, I would not ask you to do it. So I want to end with a passage, uh, a poem, another Hafiz poem, which I, I love a lot. It's called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. (laughs) You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands, like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teak wood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. Let's just sit for a moment quietly. Thanks for your kind attention to your 150th hindrance talk. We have now about a half hour for, for. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.